From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where it is a ghost town. The House and Senate are out. President still in San Francisco. He's going to Delaware later tonight for the weekend. It's a Thanksgiving feel. Actually, there's a Christmas tree across the street from the Bureau. So I don't know. Maybe we're just fast forwarding through this whole thing. So thanks for being with us, whether you're on the radio, on the satellite or on YouTube. Find us on YouTube now. Search Bloomberg Global News. And I'll remind you later to subscribe to the podcast because we've got a lot of good stuff we're packing into two hours here, beginning with what's happening in Israel. On the terminal, the latest story that we're following has to do with relief in Gaza. Israel says it will allow two diesel tankers per day into Gaza to support water and sewage system, prevent an outbreak of disease. And this is happening, of course, against the backdrop of, in many cases, door-to-door fighting with the IDF, trying to rid Gaza of Hamas. And it brings us to the situation at the hospital in Gaza. Now, this has been going on for days. We've talked about it here, IDF troops entering the hospital. And we even had the minister of the economy from Israel tell us here on Bloomberg they believe that a Hamas headquarters was below that hospital. And Israel has been under a lot of pressure to justify this move. They're out with a video now showing a tunnel that they discovered, the opening, the entry point, yes, in the hospital, as troops try to neutralize this threat and also protect civilians and patients inside. The director of the Al-Shifa Hospital giving us some numbers here. Uh, There are still more than 650 patients, 500 medical staff, and 5,000 displaced people all in that hospital. Can you imagine what it is like in that building as troops also do their work there on behalf of the IDF? And now that we're seeing video of this tunnel, I can only imagine what's happening next. But the WTO, the World Trade Organization, says we have a problem here. They've recorded at least 137 attacks on healthcare in Gaza where now 9 out of 35 hospitals are partially functioning. According to Palestinian health authorities, the rest have shut down. And the latest polling that we're seeing now uh, from Quinnipiac is quite remarkable. The shift in sentiment among Americans over what is happening here in Israel has been pronounced over the last month. The university out with these numbers showing the number of voters in America sympathizing more with Palestinians more with Palestinians increased by double digits compared to a survey last month from 13% to 24%, the shift largely driven by respondents under 35 years old. And that's where we start our conversation today with Hadar Suskin, the president and CEO for the group Americans for Peace Now is with us. Hadar, I appreciate your time and welcome to Bloomberg. 
we can have a debate here uh, about Israel's motivations uh, and the justification it has to wage a war with Hamas. But I'd like to talk to you about the effort here to save civilian lives. And I wonder what you see as the most important thing that happens now. We've got pauses in place. What is next? Hi, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm happy to be here with you today. I think there are unfortunately no no easy answers in this conversation. There are a lot of bad options and a lot of difficult choices. And mm -hmm. the need to protect civilian lives, Israeli and Palestinian civilian lives, should be paramount um, for everyone, for Israelis, for Hamas, and for the American government. Um, unfortunately, that's not what we've seen much of on the ground. And those losses have been massive and tragic on both sides. And I think, again, as you said, without getting into the justification for the war, which I'm happy to talk about it if you want to, uh, there's no doubt that greater greater precautions and greater care need to be taken to protect civilian lives. I'm glad to see that fuel allowed into Gaza. It will help. It will help with desalination plants so there are clean water with electricity. Yeah. But it represents approximately 6 or 7% of the daily amount of fuel that was going in prior to the war. And it's clearly insufficient for the needs of the population there. Fuel also means uh, the bakeries can start functioning again so people can get bread. Uh, Israel says, Hadar, it wants to evacuate the Al-Shifa hospital. I just ran through some numbers. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's larger than some small towns, the number of people who are housed there right now. What is the right path for Israel when it comes to neutralizing the threat below the hospital and protecting the people who are in it? it it's difficult. And again, it, there's no easy options here. You have two truths. One is that Hamas embeds itself in civilian populations. Hamas does things like set up headquarters in hospitals and schools and other such places. That's that's an unequivocal truth. It's also true that even if they do that, even if they commit that act, which is a war crime, it doesn't justify the killing of civilians, even if even if that is unintentional. Intention has no part in this. So um, Israel is in a very difficult situation. It, it needs to defend itself and it needs to respond to the really horrific attacks that took place on October 7th and make sure that Hamas is not able to do something like that again. But it also has a moral and legal responsibility as well as a political one to do so in a way that minimizes the loss of innocent civilian lives and that that really honors the sanctity of all life and i know you're referring uh to both sides in this you wrote uh, an op-ed in the hill the headline yes. in israel and gaza i choose the side of humanity realizing that hamas chooses the other. Is that fair? Well, I, I, again, the end of that was not in the, the headline. But yes, look, Hamas has made it clear. No, I added that. I am, I'm asking right. you that question based on your headline. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Hamas has made it clear long before October 7th, but certainly with its horrific attack, which is a massacre of civilians, right? A massacre of innocent people, women, children, infants, um, that they don't respect human life. And frankly, the fact that they embed themselves among the civilian population in Gaza, the fact that they have food and fuel and other materials that they don't give to the civilian population of Gaza makes it clear that they don't have that uh, respect for the sanctity of human life. The question mm. that 
Israel faces and the question that we as leaders in the United States face is simply whether we're going to take the same position as Hamas or not. And for me, part of that point of choosing the side of humanity is moving away from what we've seen so much of on the, quote, pro-Israel side and pro-Palestinian side of people just trying to score points for their team, people trying to prove that Israelis are all right and justice and, and righteous and just, or Palestinians are all righteous and just. This is not that simple. And it's not a sporting event where you cheer for your team. These are the real lives of real people and incredibly difficult questions that don't have easy answers, but need to be addressed. Does Benjamin Netanyahu respect the lives of Palestinian civilians? Look, I I think um, it is unbelievably evident that Benjamin Netanyahu and his entire government have failed. Uh, that, frankly, was clear in many ways before October 7th. But on October 7th, it became clear that they failed at what is the fundamental function of government, which is protecting the lives of its civilians. And his response, what we've seen taking place in Gaza since then, as well as what we've seen in the West Bank, and frankly, what we saw before October 7th, is that Benjamin Netanyahu values his own political future. And that is his priority. He puts that ahead of um, frankly, the good of the Israeli people and certainly the good of the Palestinian people. What do you make of the Quinnipiac University poll that came out yesterday? I mentioned at the top of the hour here, we are seeing a shift. The number of voters in America sympathizing more with Palestinians increasing by double digits from the same survey last month. And it's not a surprise to see that driven by people under 35. Those who are old, older, and, and particularly those over 65 are far more likely to hold the opposite positions. And that probably represents lawmakers here in Washington and, and the active voting public a lot more. Uh, but was this a surprise to you or something that you expect to see continue? Yeah, it's certainly not a surprise. Um, I think given what we are seeing the images that are coming out of Gaza, um, the stories and the reports that we're hearing, I'm not surprised at this at all. Uh, I agree with what you said, that that doesn't reflect, certainly not Congress, and frankly, probably not the majority of voting Americans. You know, these polls, I I often honestly find very problematic and not, not very helpful beyond a broad talking point. Because if you ask me, am I pro-Israel? I would say, yes, mm-hmm. I'm an Israeli citizen. I am an IDF veteran. Um, If you ask me, am I pro-Palestinian, I would also say yes. I don't think those things can be mutually exclusive. Not only that they shouldn't be, but they can't be. And I say that because, you know, this war is going to come to an end. It's not not as soon as I would like it to, and and I don't know when, but it will end. And when it does, there will still be Israelis there. And when it does, there will still be Palestinians there. And those Israelis and those Palestinians have to find a better way to live and work together going to the future. There's literally simply no option. So somebody who tells me that they are pro-Israel but anti-Palestinian is not pro-Israel and the same the other way around. We're spending some time uh, talking with Hadar Suskin, the president and CEO of the group Americans for Peace Now and a very uh, important uh, piece of information as a former member of the IDF, as you just told us. What do you think... Uh, your former brothers in arms are going through here, being asked to carry out incredibly dangerous operations in Gaza. Brothers and sisters, first of all, I will say, uh, Israel certainly is uh, one among the leaders in having integrated, in terms of gender, its its armed forces, including its combat forces. Look, 
again, I think that the attacks of the 7th required a military response. No country would or should allow an attack like that on its citizens, a massacre of somewhere between 12 and 1400 people, 240 or so people taken hostage. So a military response, sadly, was necessary. Um, but that's not a blank check. And that doesn't mean any military response is okay. The responsibility for that and for what the actions are and what the decisions are, of course, rests with the political leadership, not the day-to-day soldiers. But tell you, along with you know many friends and many uh, colleagues and acquaintances, I have a nephew who is a combat soldier in the IDF right now, and uh, they are going through terrible, terrible things. And again, there's you know there's no one side to this. Obviously, the people of Gaza are suffering unimaginable horrors. Um, but so too have the people of Israel, and so too have the soldiers of the IDF, uh, many of whom have lost their lives in this recent bout of the conflict uh, and been injured and, again, like everyone involved, been traumatized. I'm really glad you could make some time for us, Hadar. Thank you for being with us. He runs the group Americans uh, for Peace Now, Hadar Suskin. We thank you for joining. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th, A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. George Santos, the congressman from New York, is going to hold a news conference. He's scheduled a news conference for the Thursday after Thanksgiving, November 30, will he resign? I can only imagine after the news yesterday, the Ethics Committee in the House out with its report on Santos. Scathing is the word the news organizations are going with. And my goodness, Santos improperly diverting thousands of dollars, as we read, from his campaign for personal use. Everything from Botox to luxury items. And they're actually going through with this. The chair of the uh, ethics committee, Michael Gass, this is a Republican, by the way, it's Republican-led House, has, has done the deed. He filed a privileged resolution to expel Santos during today's pro forma session. It's the one piece of business that matters today in Washington, and that starts the clock ticking, gives you two legislative days to deal with this. So next week could be uh, something here, although, well, they've, Headed home for Thanksgiving, so we might have to wait a minute. When he comes back into town here, the news conference is going to be well attended, I think. We'll reassemble our panel for their take on things. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. It does look like the writing uh, is on the wall here, Jeannie. Is this the end of George Santos's political career? 
it is one way or the other. You know, at least this pushed him to announce that he is not going to seek re-election. Um, but right. I do think if they go for a vote, he will be expelled at this point. But boy, what a horrific, ugly, dirty ending to, I think, maybe, and I wouldn't say this lightly, one of the ugliest years in the modern history of Congress. So it is quite a way to end the year. And, you know, you think about it, not just Botox, but what he was spending his campaign funds on, at least on Thursday when he holds the press conference, we know he'll be well dressed and he'll look good, Joe, because he's been <laughs> well, spending yeah. an awful lot to shore himself up for that. He's got a lot of sweaters, that's for sure. Uh, Rick, <laughs> will he resign before his colleagues have a chance to vote him out? If he's smart, he will. Uh, you know, that would certainly uh create a little different environment when they get back on the 28th of November. Uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, it's not often that you get this kind of a resolution by the chairman of the ethics committee. Uh, it, he's already been uh, tested twice uh, dis, uh, on, on getting uh, votes for his expulsion, maybe third time's the charm. Uh, and I think this whole idea of a press conference on the 30th, I mean, he may not be a member by the 30th. Uh, of uh, of November. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know why anybody would show up to hear him talk about why he was expelled from Congress. Um, but yeah. the, the bottom line is, I actually see it as a positive. It shows you that the ethics committee is working, uh, that it's been bipartisan, that it's actually doing its its job, uh, and that, that maybe together Republicans and Democrats can celebrate the fact that they can police their own ranks for a change. All we've talked about mm. since Santos was was elected is what a blight he is on the Republican Party and how how he makes kind of a joke of the institution. And maybe it got to the point where uh, members are going to start thinking about their own image of the institution, what's good for it, uh, for a change. And certainly, as Jeannie said, been a rough year in that regard, but maybe we're entering the end of this year in a, a different tone. He'd be the first member expelled since James Traficant, which, God, that was back in 2002. It's been a long time since this has happened, uh, Jeannie. Uh, so beam me up. What do you think? Does he resign before he gets thrown out? To Rick's point, if he has any sense, and gosh, I'm not sure he does, but if he has any sense, he will resign. You know, the reality is, is that the committee, and again, bipartisan and unanimous with this scathing report, they didn't even vote or go forward with a formal expulsion recommendation because it would have extended this ugly chaos into next year. So in the interest of getting this over quickly, pulling the Band-Aid quickly, they they decided not to go in that direction. And so it really is something. I mean, Ken Buck, the congressman from Colorado, said, George, now is the time to resign. Then you have some quiet days over the Thanksgiving holidays to clean out your office. And gosh, I wish right. he and hope he is listening to that. But again, there's no telling what he is thinking and what he's doing. But, you know, I think Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, has got to get her pen ready. If he does resign, yes, he's right. got two days to call for a special election. And that is going to be a big deal. A lot of candidates in the offing on both sides to try to contest for that seat that Biden won by eight points, that district. Yeah, that'll that'll be a riot. I can't, no one would be surprised if it turned Democratic in, in a, a, a state that has been pretty kind to Republicans lately. Rick, if this actually happens, does it start a conversation about a double standard in the Republican Party when it comes to Donald Trump? 
you know, it, it could. Uh, there's a lot of sensitivity on both sides of the aisle about not uh, jumping ahead of uh, the process. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the ethics committee kind of plowed the, the 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 field for the idea of going forward with this, even though no one has actually convicted Santos of uh, wrongdoing, uh, the overwhelming weight of the evidence uh, and the expansive report. I mean, typically the the ethics committee only releases like a half a pager on their investigations, fifty pages of 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 indictment against uh, Representative Santos was was presented and it just overwhelmingly indicts him uh, on his behavior. So, uh, yeah, I think that 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 there there will be some thought about uh, around the vote, especially are we are we creating a, a moral equivalency here uh, about Donald Trump? But um, my mm-hmm. guess is people are just going to want to put the blinders on and say, like, this is about George Santos and we've got to. We got to get him out of our 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 institution. Do you each have thoughts on what he does here, other than potentially go to jail, if that's where this is going uh, with his criminal case, Genie? Does he go to reality TV? This, this country loves a, a rehabilitation story, right? Is he going to be on the talk show circuit? What happens? Yeah, I can only imagine. Maybe he'll start a podcast. You know, maybe he will <laughs> go into fashion. Um, I, I, I can't even guess what he will do next. But gosh, it would be great to get him out of politics of and out of the U.S. House. Fashion. And nobody wants that more than his constituents in that Long Island district. The Republicans are yeah. pulling their hair out that he has been sitting there wasting their votes for two years now, not even on a committee. Right. I've only got 30 seconds again, Rick. Could he get a lot of money for a book? Is that actually what comes next? I think a TV show would be better. I mean, it'd be part comedy and part drama. And fashion, apparently. Rick Davis, (laughs) Jeannie Shanzano, have some final thoughts with us straight ahead. This is really happening. George Santos, read about it. We've got a great uh, story on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com if you want to understand the charges and what was inside that ethics report. It's a reader. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. As we consider our station in life here going into the Thanksgiving break and what was done this week, what was actually accomplished and what has yet to be done. It's a much longer list on the other side here. And that's where we're going to begin our conversation with Mark Short. I just uh, rattled through his business card. It's a long one as he straddles both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. This is the insider conversation that I was promising. Former uh, head of the Republican uh, conference in the House, former the chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence. Great to see you, sir. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So we avoided a shutdown. We could take a minute to celebrate that, right? We're not shutting down this week. Yeah. Everybody would have been freaking out right now and planning to work over the weekend in any other world. That's right. And I think we'll probably avoid another one come January and February. But it does at least extend it for a couple months uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to all the way through the next fiscal year. Um, but I think that uh, House Republicans seem to be coming to acceptance that they don't control the Senate or the White House. And so their negotiating leverage here isn't quite the same. It is, I think, somewhat ironic, Joe, that um, the deal that Kevin McCarthy negotiated just a few weeks back that he ended up getting removed from his speakership for actually had $60 billion less in spending than this CR does. How about that? 
Uh, so, you know, for all those members who were claiming that they were fighting for principle on fiscal sanity, mm-hmm. I think it's it's been clearly exposed. That really, it's more of a personal yeah. problem with Kevin for them than it was really ever policy. Well, I know some members are getting a little annoyed already. We're hearing Chip Royce. He's got two strikes against him already. Should they have fixed that motion to vacate before? You already answered my next question. You don't think we're going to shut down in January. That probably means, though, he's got to work with Democrats again. So is he going to run into the same trouble as his predecessor? Again, I think the reality is that Republicans are going to have to work with Democrats because they control the Senate Does and the they control get that? the White House. And so whether it's inside the House conference, I think mm-hmm. I think the opposition always was the stronger bill you can get out of the House, the more negotiating leverage you have. But I think there's some conservatives, I think, who on principle take a position that they will never vote for CR mm-hmm. uh, and that Congress should do its job and pass appropriations bills. The margin is so narrow that means that you're never going to do anything but ACR right now because right. Um, you're going to have to work with the Democrats to get one passed out of the House. So the idea of regular order uh, by whatever it is, February 2nd, that's not what we're talking about here. You think there might be another stopgap? It wouldn't be a year long, right? That would right. that would be the end of the speaker, I'm assuming. Well, I, I do think you'll get, a, you'll get a CR that'll finish through the rest of the fiscal year. I, hmm. I'm not sure that the Republicans are in a position right now, having gone through the exercise with wow. Kevin, that they want to remove another speaker. Yeah. So I do think that that's where we'll end up. I think at the same time, there'll be appropriations bills put forward in the House that try to pass. Mm-hmm. I'm skeptical that they'll actually get all 12 done. So I think you're going to end up with another CR, yes. I want to ask you, of course, uh, about the rest of the job here. It's not just funding the government, but the supplemental budget request israel ukraine we talk about it every day and there's no real path here though we've had we've had members of the senate tell us they think they might actually be able to get this over the finish line in december and not prolong a wait into next year are they speaking a different language still than the house on this i think that um i'm probably optimistic as well that inevitably there'll be funding for ukraine and mm-hmm. israel um, but I'm, I'm probably thinking that that won't be a standalone bill. I think that's probably something that comes forward combined with the CR in January or February. Because mm-hmm. at that point, if, you've, if you're accepting the conversation you and I are already having, right. that inevitably you're going to need a bipartisan CR bill, mm-hmm. then I think the Senate will have more leverage at that point to go ahead and attach the additional supplemental funding. Because, because Johnson's not going to be able to get a Republican-only bill out of the House. Yeah. So you're going to have to do something bipartisan anyhow. So at that point, it makes more sense to attach that funding. Hinging on an agreement, some breakthrough that we've waited decades for on border security. Is that fair? You know, I'm probably less optimistic on the border security funding. I think that uh, a lot of Republicans mm. are anxious to see that. But I think, as Ron DeSantis said from the debate stage uh, a few weeks back, the reality is what the Biden administration is proposing in border security funding is really just more funding to facilitate more asylum uh, processing and, and to actually allow more uh, refugees into the United States, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's really what Republicans are looking for. They want they want bricks and mortar. They want a wall. They want to change the asylum law, right? So that's I'm probably less it's optimistic on the, on the border security piece of it. Boy, um, I have to ask you about this. We're just talking about George Santos. Um, it's an interesting scenario here because of. An election in Utah, it might actually be a wash if George Santos is expelled. The Republican majority remains the same. I don't know if that matters to you. Do you think he resigns before he's expelled? Do you think the votes are there to expel? Well, first, I don't think it's a wash because I think the Utah seat is pretty much guaranteed to be a Republican seat. So the reality is we're going to pick up that seat regardless. And I think that you're going to be down one more member when either he's expelled or he he does resign. Uh, I don't don't pretend to know what's in his head as to what he's— 
he's going to do. I think he's going to do whatever gets them the most press attention. So they called a news conference for yeah, November 3rd. I could right? see him Is coming that... back and having a press conference, and uh, but ultimately pulling out right before the vote if he feels like he's going to lose wow. the vote. So he's probably taking a temperature and seeing where I think he is probably yeah. comes together over Thanksgiving. Does the conference want him out? I think the conference. Well, <laughs> I think they're competing interests. I think for a lot of members, they probably do want him out. But at the same time, they want to lose a seat. We've talked about how narrow the majority is. It's not like they can really afford additional seats. And and I think you're seeing more and more announcements to retirements. And some of those people may not wait till next November. Mm. So the, that that majority could even get even smaller. Which is why I think a lot of Republicans would probably want to say, like, can we just see he's announced he's not going to run again. Let's get to to next November. But mm-hmm. I don't think that that's going to last. I think. He'll probably be pushed out sooner. Boy, what a story. We won't be able to say the you know, latest since James Traficant anymore if this actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, spending time with Mark Short, I have to ask you about the campaign trail. Uh, the, the former vice president is no longer running, and we're seeing a surge here, uh, it seems, for Nikki Haley's campaign. Are those associated somehow? I'm not so convinced they are, and, I, and I'm actually um, – I think there's been a surge in the press coverage and a surge in donor support for Mm. Nikki Haley, which is not inconsequential, Joe. Those are very important things that you need. But at the same time, you've seen actually former President Trump's numbers go up into the 60s. Yeah, how about that? And so even though there's maybe a a small boost for Nikki or a small boost for DeSantis or even Chris Christie in New Hampshire, the reality is is that Donald Trump is leading the field by 40 to 50 points. Well, we've got a Monmouth poll now. We had an Emerson poll the other day. You showed Nikki Haley vaulting into second place in New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis falling to four. It does seem like uh, there is a bit of a shift in the so-called race for second. There are changing places in the race yeah. for second. But the, the delta between where that is and where Donald it's, Trump it's, is it's, remains it's the same. massive. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But it's also not lost on me that the only other voice on the debate stage with foreign policy experience has left. Mm-hmm. And that suddenly makes Nikki Haley unique in the field. I think it does create a separation for in the debate, which is important. I think anytime you're in a crowded field, you want to have a, a, something that, that segments the market and differentiates yourself. And I think, I think that with everything going on in the Middle East right now, mm-hmm. it does give her a, a much bigger platform to speak from at this moment. This is not a race, though, different than, than other cycles, uh, not a race for vice president. Right. Donald Trump doesn't want any of them and it doesn't seem they want to be with him. Isn't that peculiar? I think that um, people's ambitions are such that uh, what they might proclaim during the campaign trail, that that they may be more willing to serve in that role. And I think you may also see that uh, former President Trump is more willing to extend that offer if he feels like Hmm. it's advantageous to him. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't rule any of them out yet to be to be a vice presidential pick. Donald Trump, Nikki Haley. I mean, she worked for him. She brings the foreign policy experience and and apparently a slightly different base uh, of support. I suppose anything's possible, but there'll be a lot well, of tape to play back on. Yeah, I, I don't want to pretend that she's running for that at this point. I think I she, is, sure. she is running for president. I do think that the president, uh, the former president, is uh, has pointed out many times how she made a pledge that she would never run against him, mm. and yet she did. And so <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not, I want to, I don't want any way to predict that that's where we're going to end up. Sure. But I, I do think that people's, um, Ambitions are such that uh, their their stated principles can be somewhat more flexible. Well, I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about your former boss. And I'm sure that you still talk to Mike Pence. He had, uh, support him or not, a, kind of a unique spot on that stage. And I wonder to what effect he might be able to help affect the outcome of this campaign, whether he's uh, 
going to reserve that until later? Or maybe this is just a completely different chapter. As you go back in the media, what do you see in the future for him? I think he's going to have a lot of different opportunities, uh, Joe. Right now, I, I don't think that he's in a hurry to endorse in, in this race. Mm-hmm. I think he needs to play out some. And uh, uh, But I think he had the opportunity on the stage to talk about concerns he has about where our party is going and, candidly, where the conservative movement is going. Mm-hmm. In many cases, I think walking away from his time-honored principles of limited government in pursuit of a more populist appeal in many ways, walking away from our uh, alliances and partnerships with democracies across the globe and uh, and wanting to retreat and be more of an appeasing isolationist approach. And so I think he he was able to make those points. I think you're going to continue to hear make those points in the future. Is he glad he ran? Oh, I think he felt uh, he felt like it was a blessing to get to spend so much time with voters yeah. in Iowa, New Hampshire. And I think he was grateful that he had a chance to make those points on the stage. Hmm. It's really something when you consider uh, his career particularly at the end of the Trump administration, his involvement in January 6th and the voice that he had, which is why I'm curious to see what it might become, because I feel like he's probably not done here. Uh, But this is a pretty complex time. You're going to be on the campaign trail, I guess. And I know you watch this very closely. Is the media getting it right or wrong on Ron DeSantis? Because he's being labeled as the Jeb Bush of this campaign. I think that they're they're actually getting it wrong at this point. I, I think there's no doubt that uh, there was a lot of inflation from the media about DeSantis's candidacy before he ran. And Enormous so, expectations. And so then, therefore, the narrative is is one that compares him more to Jeb and, mm-hmm. and sort of the notion of a collapse. But I think right now, DeSantis is in second place in Iowa, which is the first caucus. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that uh, we have to wait to get through that Iowa perspective and then and then we can reassess where DeSantis's campaign is. I think it's it's premature to write an obituary that suggests that uh, his following the same path as Jeb Bush. Well, would you see, you know how Iowa can can really be a game changer. It can shake things up and then it can happen again in New Hampshire. Uh frequently against the grain here. You remember Mike Huckabee uh winning Rick Santorum is Iowa going to Surprise us this time? What do you I feeling? think there will be a surprise now. Whether or not it's, it's somebody wins or whether or not somebody simply comes in a much closer second place That's for right. Donald Trump, the expectation right now that I think the Trump campaign has, has pushed is one that he's going to run away with this. And so even if there's a candidate who finishes, let's say, within 10 points, I think for a lot of media, it's going to be, whoa, wait a second, maybe yes. this is actually closer. And so I do think that uh, the Trump campaign has built up exceedingly high expectations for how they would do in Iowa, New Hampshire. And I do think that Iowa relishes the chance to sort of change the narrative. Iowa voters take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, um, Santorum and Huckabee, as well as Barack Obama. That's right. All of these candidates were polling really, in Obama's case, in the low uh, double digits, but others high single digits totally shook up until the, the fall. And, and so I think that uh, people forget as well that in 2016, Donald Trump did not win Iowa. Yeah, how about People that? just assumed that he did, but it actually was Ted Cruz who won we the Iowa a long time caucus. To find out. <laughs> and so, uh, so, yeah, I think there will be surprises in Iowa. Well, so to, uh, to that end, uh, it was remarkable to watch the dominoes fall in the Democratic primary between Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina mm-hmm. in, uh, in 2020. Joe Biden we were doing exit interviews with Joe Biden in Manchester. And all of a sudden, what the heck? Everybody dropped out within three hours or something. He goes flying into South Carolina, and he's, he's uh, anointed, essentially, the nominee. Are we going to see an attempt, maybe not a successful one, but an attempt to clear the field here and, and, and identify an alternative to Donald Trump? 
coalesce around that Well, person. I think the market forces do that naturally. Yeah. The reality is if you don't have the fundraising to continue on, it's hard to continue mm-hmm. on. And I think we're already down to really four principal candidates, and uh, you may be in a narrower field by the time you get to Iowa. So I don't know how much more there is, but but Joe, I do think I probably um, have a, a less uh, uh, contemporary perspective on this. Like, I think for a lot of the media, the notion is, hey, you just need to get down to one alternative to Trump. Right, right. And I think that what we've seen is that as candidates get out of the race, it almost builds more inevitability that Trump is going to be the nominee. Wow. As we just talked about, as candidates have gotten out, you've actually seen Trump's numbers get up above 60%. And, and as Ron DeSantis' numbers collapsed early in his campaign, it wasn't like that went to the rest of the field. That support went back to Donald Trump. And so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not buying this, this, this I think, uh, conventional wisdom sure. that says, hey, there needs to be one alternative to Trump. I think in actuality, as candidates fall out, it builds more inevitability that Trump will be the nominee. Unreal. It's like the gravitational pull of the sun. Mark Short, great to see you. Happy Jeff, Thanksgiving. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Always a pleasure to have Appreciate you at you. the table here. Republican strategist Mark Short with us in a fascinating conversation, as you would expect here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Patrick Dahan uh, does this for a living. You've heard him before on Sound On, and he's with us again now, the head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy. It's great to have you, Patrick. Welcome back. Uh, as we talk again ahead of another holiday weekend, looking at crude, as I mentioned, WTI near $76 a gallon and a national average at 333 What's it going to look like once we really get into the throes of wintertime? Well, I think we'll continue to moderate here. We've seen a lot of downward pressure in the last uh, four weeks on WTI prices. So, uh, that's translated to uh, certainly cheaper gasoline prices. We're also in the midst of seasonality. Americans simply not driving as much, even though they're on the doorstep of Thanksgiving. Uh, Americans really toning down their gasoline consumption. That's put a lot of downward pressure on prices as well. In addition, refineries wrapping up their maintenance, and they're going to have to find a place to put all that gasoline. Uh, and all of that uh, coupled together with uh, less risk from the Middle East has uh, certainly caused an eight-week drop in the price of gasoline. The national average now at huh. 3.31 a gallon. Uh, that's the lowest tally since February. So just in time for a driving holiday, we're greeted with some of the lowest uh, prices in months. Sounds counterintuitive. I have to admit, when I hear references to less <laughs> risk in the Middle East, I know there was a great concern about a second front that this might expand into something involving Iran if it isn't already mm-hmm. on a proxy level here. Uh, but is it is it just a, a matter of expectations? Because we've still got a hot war going in Gaza. Yeah, it is. It's managing expectations. Uh, there is also less risk in this area. Uh, Israel, obviously not a major oil producer, but as you mentioned, this is more of a risk 
about Iran. And certainly Iran has even suggested in recent weeks to Hamas that it's not going to get involved in this. So that further uh, reduces the amount of risk. Of course, something could change. Uh, but all of this, uh, the takeaway is really that this is not Im- impacting or slowing down the flows of crude oil out of the Middle East. And that's why oil prices, initially, there was a little bit of risk, but this never really affected gas prices. It could not overpower the seasonality. That, by the way, will continue. And now with crude at $76 a barrel, though it's up today, I still think there's a pretty mm-hmm. good shot that we could retest the lows that we saw last winter when the national average bottomed out mm-hmm. at 305 a gallon. And that's that's an economic indicator, right? That's a cooling economy, which would be consistent with a lot of the data we're seeing. There's uh, really uh, fewer is reliable, though, as the as the price of gas. Yeah, certainly uh, the price of gasoline, an economic barometer. And of course, the price of gas is contingent on gasoline consumption, and that's been weakening. So certainly some uh, signals from consumption, which uh, gas buddy's latest estimate Last week, the U.S. consumed 8.46 million barrels. I know the EIA data was quite a bit higher, almost a a mid-summer print. But our data is suggestive of a consumer that's a bit reluctant to fill up at the same pace they did even weeks prior. So uh, certainly uh, uh, not a positive sign on the economy. But, you know, Americans uh, uh, feeling the uh, the lower prices, Uh, 60,000 stations now across the United States with gasoline under $3, 12 states under $3. So a lot more Americans looking at the pump and feeling a little bit more normal it may not boost their holiday spending. You sound optimistic as we spend time with Patrick DeHaan from Gas Buddy. Um, we keep asking the White House about refilling the SPR. And when you see $75 a barrel, we're getting back into that range that the Energy Department said it was comfortable with. Are we about to see mm-hmm. a lot more bids? Because uh, I know it's not as simple as just uh, going in the market and, yeah. and buying these barrels. Or is this just something that's going to take a generation because so much has been used? Well, I mean, I, I'd really be hoping with the, the moves that the Department of Energy and, and the White House has been making in, in, in preparation to fill this, that now that the strike price you know, was hit, $79 a barrel was the price that the DOE clearly outlined. I'd be hoping that they were active in the market. Now, they did just uh, announce last week a 1.6 million barrel buyback, but that's, you know, as we know, uh, that's a needle in the haystack kind of amount. So they, they really need to ramp up. And as long as the uh, the price of WTI has remained below $79, I, I really hope that the government's in a position to, to buy back at these prices, considering the average selling price, uh, you know, last year was $95 a barrel. When we consider folks heating their homes this winter, uh, what's the gap going to look like between those who use heating oil and those who use natural gas? Well, natural gas has come come down far more uh, than what we've seen for heating oil. And, and simply because uh, in light of the Russia war in Ukraine, there's been a lot of changes, a lot of uh, increase in natural gas production. And, and we benefited last year from a warmer than expected winter as well. Um, you know, we just did not see withdrawals uh, from natural gas reserves is significant. And so we we came out of winter above average, and now natural gas inventories have continued to run well above average. And so that's put a lot of downward pressure on natural gas prices. But home heating oil is subject to the refining uh, uh, constraints that we've been dealing with the last yeah. few years, and they aren't completely resolved. I mean, more refining capacities come online, but all it would take is one you know, extended period, a couple of weeks of, of bone chilling temperatures in the Northeast for those home heating oil prices to shoot up to potentially four fifty right. or $5 a gallon again. 
Well, you just answered my next question then. So is it is this the year to cut up the oil tank again, get rid of it, and go to natural gas? <laughs> well, I, I think now more than ever, um, you know, I, I do expect home heating oil prices to be lower than last year. But to your point, uh, there's probably never been a better time, uh, more cost savings associated with making the jump over to natural gas. And that's that's what we've been seeing in hmm. recent years. So I'm, I'm sure that's a trend that will continue. Patrick, it's good to have you. I don't know if you're driving. Does someone in your business actually get in the car around Thanksgiving or... Is that the reason why you, you know, do not? I, <laughs> I was out scouting prices uh, just a couple hours ago. I've been making the rounds and, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised, but I'll be staying home for Thanksgiving. And, you know, I was talking to some other folks as well that, uh, you know, a lot of us seem to be staying closer to home and gas buddy survey hmm. found that a lot of Americans, 41% are hitting the road, but that means a lot of them aren't. Wait, you're really driving around scouting gas prices. You don't have some way to get oh, these prices earlier. in another way. I- <laughs> I was scouting prices as I was running around uh, to get ready for Thanksgiving next week. <laughs> I guess you can't help yourself. I love the image of Patrick I, I, I can't. I, I have to going report gas those station prices, to gas you know? station. Well, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. uh, you're, you're firsthand reporting. It's good to have you, Patrick. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you have a safe holiday. Come back and see us again soon. The head of petroleum analysis at gasbuddy.com. I picture him like Henry Hill driving or looking up the windshield. It's not a helicopter, Patrick. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.